Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Before we get started on today's show, I wanted to let you know that affiliates of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke have published three new books that you'll want to check out. If you go to the Cook Center website, socialequity.duke.edu, under our research tab, you'll find links to a revised edition of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, The Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, and A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. These books are incredibly insightful and amplify our mission at the Cook Center to offer policy solutions to racial, social, and financial inequities. That website again is socialequity.duke.edu, and you'll find those books under the research tab. All right, let's get to the show. The pre-existing conditions or the conditions prior to the pandemic really set, set it up in a way that put a lot of Black households in very um, vulnerable positions. The big, giant wealth gaps uh, that existed before the pandemic, like, it's so hard for policy to move that around because the size of the problem is so big. Uh, I think that there are policies that could address these enormous disparities, but they're not incremental policies. You're listening to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. On our first podcast series, we're focusing on the pandemic divide, how COVID increased inequality in America. It's a collaborative book from faculty, many here at Duke, who are committed to shining a light on inequities and truly making a difference. I'm so excited for this episode for a couple of reasons. One, because it's an interesting topic financial insecurity, debt, and the pandemic. And two, because I get to take a backseat and let the amazing Dr. Darity lead the conversation today. Dr. William Darity, known to most as Sandy, is the director here at the Cook Center and professor of public policy, African and African-American studies and economics at Duke. This episode features Feneba Addo and Chris Wheat, who both contributed to chapters in section three of the pandemic divide, COVID-19 and financial disparities. Feneba Addo is an associate professor of public policy at UNC Chapel Hill, and Chris Wee is the president of the J.P. Morgan Chase Institute. Without further ado, here's Dr. Darity. I guess I'd like to ask Feneba if she would begin the conversation by talking about some of the consequences of the pandemic for an area of indebtedness that has been a focus of her research, which is uh, student loan debt. So one of the things I'll start off by saying is that at the same time that we had the pandemic, we also had a presidential election happening and student loan debt became a central issue of a lot of the Democratic nominee candidates who were vying for the presidency. As a result, the uh, student loan discussions around student loans, student loans, in particular student debt cancellation became a hot button issue alongside the the pandemic and so when we saw the the policy responses to the pandemic we saw the president also include policies that address the student loan debt um, I hope I'm doing a good job of kind of explaining what I'm trying to say that the, the there, there was like these two ongoing events happening at the same time that led to like this perfect storm of, of legislation and policy that also addressed student loan debt and so I say that to say that we saw 
um, of what ended up happening, a moratorium on federal student loans um, in particular that went on to be extended an additional six times um, over the course of since uh, 2020. And really thinking, uh, we've been thinking a lot about how that impacted households, um, in particular Black borrowers, who for whom um, we know have large some of the largest loan balances and struggle the most with default and repayment. In addition to Black households bearing the brunt of a lot of the, the societal ills that came with the pandemic, such as higher unemployment, um, inability to work, bearing the brunt of of the COVID pandemic. So having family or family members that got sick and potentially um, had a higher uh, probability of, of dying. So um, really thinking about how all of these forces kind of came together, um, the, both the financial and the health in order to really impact the, uh, these households. Could, could you comment on, on why there's a, a particular emphasis on student loan debt as opposed to other categories of indebtedness? So I, I'll speak to why, why it is for me. I, I think what we if we look explicitly at like racial wealth inequality, um, a lot of the um, and Sandy, you know, the the racial wealth gap is driven by the asset side of, of the of the household balance sheet. But student debt is actually one of the liabilities or on the other side of the balance sheet in which we do see um, stark race black white disparities. So as student debt kind of increased over the last 30, 40 years, you know, Black households disproportionately took on a large share of that student debt. Now, this is coupled with, you know, what's going on in higher education, right? So more uh, students going to school, changes in higher education, the shift from, you know, federal, federal and state governments subsidizing education to putting the risk onto families and households. So there's a lot of, uh, reasons as to why, you know, not only my work is focused on student loan debt, but also why, as a, as a scholar of inequality, why we are particularly interested in how it's operated in the lives of, of Black households and Black families. In the context of uh, what has happened with wealth inequality recently, we don't actually have the standard, I guess, or gold standard national data set to rely upon for information about the black-white wealth gap. The gold standard data set, I think, is the Survey of Consumer Finances, which is produced by the Federal Reserve, and it's generated on a three-year basis. So the most recent survey that we have access to is the survey that was conducted in 2019. I think they're in the process of collecting the data for 2022, but it will not be reported until fall 2023. We don't actually have information from the Fed standard survey about what has happened to the racial wealth gap during the course of the pandemic. Now, I, I would like to point out that prior to the pandemic, the 2019 data indicates that the average black household has $841,900 less in net worth than the average white household. We do have some reasons for speculating that the wealth gap has expanded during the course of the pandemic. For example, uh, within the first two months of the pandemic, uh, the pandemic spreading in the United States, 40% of Black-owned businesses went out of operation. And so that would 
exhaust or eliminate a significant portion of the asset base that existed in the black community. So that's a, a, a long windup to asking Chris Wheat to talk about the data set that they have at J.P. Morgan Chase that might permit us to examine what has happened to wealth disparities between blacks and whites in the United States or between any combination of ethnic and racial groups that are sufficiently covered uh, in their data set since the pandemic took place. So Chris, I'd like to turn to you. Sure, and thank you, Sandy, uh, for inviting me to, to talk about this and for inviting us, um, along with my colleagues, to participate in the in the research and in the book. Uh, so, right, we are super lucky to have access to a data set comprised of de-identified data from uh, Chase customers. The whole thing is actually from J.P. Morgan Chase from the whole universe, but the, the part that's relevant, I think, to this conversation is this data set that we're able to create from tens of millions of customers who have checking, savings, uh, accounts with Chase. Sometimes we also look at credit card data, see households, we can see small businesses, and it just really gives us this very unprecedented view of everyday transactions in and out of these accounts, balance levels in these accounts. I would agree with your assessment of the SCF in terms of like the, the kinds of things that it can measure very intentionally. Um, and it's in some sense conceptually what we aspire to. We want to understand payments and, and income um, and expenditures. Uh, and we have a, a pretty good lens on that. We want to understand the entirety of the balance sheet. We are having, uh, we're seeing growth in our ability to understand that. But even the piece that we see on day-to-day -day changes in checking account balances can help us understand some of those shorter-term changes in the financial standing of households and small businesses. The data as it appears to us doesn't really give us that lens on racial gaps, but we have been able to do uh, work, and that's part of, I think, what got us into the conversation with you and, and your colleagues around racial gaps uh, by finding ways to incorporate other data sources in in some cases, things about uh, the race of, again, our de-identified customers. So, for instance, uh, we were able to use voter registration data from Florida, Georgia, and Louisiana uh, to get a self-reported lens on about a million families uh, and tens of thousands of small businesses that could help us understand through the course of the pandemic. I wouldn't quite call it in, in real time, but, you know, we're about a month out from what we're seeing in our data and you know, some time to, to, to think about it and, and write something up about it, but a, a much more up-to-date view on the subset of financial outcomes that we see broken out by race, conditional on the person being a, a customer, um, and for those race gaps, being in a place where we can see something uh, about the race of that customer, which, of course, is in the entire U.S. The data are still fairly representative, particularly for call it lower middle to upper middle income families, where I think uh, our deposit lens is a pretty good view. So could you tell us what what you've learned about what has happened to the magnitude of the wealth disparity by race or ethnicity using the database that you have since since the pandemic took place? The, the 
interesting thing that I think we saw, and, and I might be oversummarizing a bit here, but uh, both looking at households and, and small businesses was the large uh, gaps that we saw in income or in um, employment status uh, or in wealth, or at least wealth as we could see it, really were the context that we had to use to understand what we saw through the pandemic. Um, like the very early turns that we saw in things like income imbalances. So, and by early here, I mean literally, you know, the first month or so of the pandemic, there were places where we saw sharper downturns for Black, Hispanic, and Latino families, for instances, um, Asian business owners in some cases. Uh, in those very first weeks and first months, we saw these really, really sharp pivots down as you got out farther into the pandemic because of the idiosyncratic structure of some of the policies. And in, in here I'm really speaking about the policies where there was policies that were like $6 amounts or that maybe scaled to the size of a family or something like that. They kind of landed on families the same, but they made a bigger relative difference for families that had less. Um, and so in, in a lot of the charts that we produce and like in the ways that we think about like, as compared to last year, are you 10 percentage points up or down? Um, you actually see larger impacts for lower income families, for lower wealth families. Those happen to be the families that are often black or Hispanic or Latino. Uh, and so that was kind of a, like an unexpected turn where we were seeing, you know, three, four, 10, 15 months into the pandemic, like those relative uh, changes in, in income imbalance actually being higher for Black and Hispanic and Latino and, and, and in general low-income families. Um, but the really important piece of context is gas didn't close. Uh, you mentioned an $840,000 average wealth gap from the 2019 SEF, if I'm remembering the number right, which I may or may not be. Um, no, no, right, like the, the kind of movement that we were seeing is much, much smaller than that, right? Um, the policy response, um, while significant in historic terms, relative to federal policy, you know, it's still not of the, there weren't families that were receiving in excess of $840,000. So like it wasn't that even these very, very significant programs uh, were making large changes insofar as we would understand in, in terms of the longer term structural differences. So maybe this is a question I should have started with, with you, Feneba, before jumping to student debt. Could you talk a bit about what the difference is between income and wealth and what the implications are for the federal policies that that were designed to respond to the recessionary effects of the pandemic? Could you talk about the extent to which those policies might have influenced income versus influencing wealth? At a very basic level, I guess I'll start off by saying when we think about wealth, uh, the wealth equation, wealth is the total value of one's assets. That usually includes um, financial and non-financial assets minus the total value of one's liabilities or debts. So it's a it's an equation, right? <laughs> it is just, you know, what's on one side of the balance sheet minus what's on the, what, what one owns versus minus what one owes. And when we think about it as in a, in a from a social inequality lens, we know that wealth confers a whole lot more than just that equation, right? Um, we tend to think of household wealth as a private safety net, like an insurance mechanism when households experience shocks or, um, you know, unemployment, a health shock, 
um, you can turn to that stock of money in order to help buttress or weather uh, financial, financial storms. This is in contrast to income, which is considered more of a flow. Um, most households, a lot of um, lower to middle income households, that's earned income through the labor market. But at the higher end of the income distribution, or the, and, and I should say, in the higher end of the wealth distribution, a lot of that is like capital income from investments. So those are very, you know, two very different. Um, the way we conceptualize it, two very different um, ways of thinking about where people um, receive uh, economic resources into their households, right? So there's a stock of, of that you can rely on, the wealth and the income. So when we look at it through a racialized lens, the income gap <laughs> or between black and white households has um, been closing over time um, to, to a certain extent. Um, it's, it's smaller, but when we look at the wealth gap, that's the one that's really exorbitant. It's really large. And just like having this, uh, this, this stock of, of private savings, this private safety net is lacking a lot in a lot of Black households um, across the income distribution. A lot of the policy that were passed during the pandemic were income means tested or means-based tested. So they were relying on the earned income from uh, households income based on prior the, the prior year. So uh, like the 2019 income that you reported to the IRS, for example, um, they're not looking at your wealth uh, in order to kind of uh, to look at, um, you know, how much you may receive from like the child tax credit, for example. Um, so for many Black households, like he said, which was showing up in his data, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, presumably uh, 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 we see a lot of low-income households um, who are, you know, disproportionately uh, Black and Latinx, for example, receiving those tax credits based on their lower income profiles. Um, and those and, and those were direct deposit. A lot of them were direct deposited into bank accounts. Um, so that's really where we see this, these policies, kind of policy responses, responding to people's um, income position, again, lagged, right? So based on their previous year's income not really addressing the wealth positions of, of these households, which is separate. So, so is it is it fair to say that most of what was done in terms of the uh, anti-pandemic stimulus packages were uh, income supplements as opposed to uh, resources that were allocated for asset building purposes? That is, that is correct, with the exception of, so if we look at the... Um, the uh, oh, I'm gonna get it wrong because my mind is <laughs> the um, the business, the loans, the the loan, the the the, 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 the payroll, pay, protection? payroll protection. Thank you, <laughs> the payroll yeah, protection. Yeah. Which um, which you can't you know you can't ignore because that was meant to help a lot of small businesses. But as the as Sandy, you already alluded to earlier, that uh, a lot of businesses, a lot of black owned businesses went out of business in those early months of the pandemic, so they weren't able to receive the help from the federal government if you couldn't wait long enough to get the help from the federal government. Is it also true, unlike the income supplements, that actually, uh, given their numbers, Black-owned businesses uh, were less likely to receive the level of support from the Payroll Protection Project that they should have received. I mean, isn't there some evidence that there is discrimination in the uh, distribution of the PPP funds? I believe there is some. Uh, there are some studies that have been looking, have looked at that, and found some evidence uh, to suggest that that may have been the case. Um, there was a disproportionate number of 
of larger businesses that were able to benefit from the program, um, especially as, like I said, in the early months, it, it, there were several um, different iterations of the, of the policy. Um, but in those really early months, when probably the small businesses needed it the most, they were the ones that were not the recipients of the make a large share of that of, the, of those major payouts. An important difference between there are many important differences, but but one that I would specifically call out between PPP and some of the other programs, uh, like the economic impact payments and uh, the, the modification of TUI, the PPP loans were scaled to the revenues of the business, so explicitly household targeted programs. Um, they were means tested, right? Um, but sort of conditional on being in the window of means testing, the payments were not driven by does your family spend a lot? Uh, they were driven by how big is your family? In contrast, the, the Paycheck Protection Program, if you if you were a bigger firm, you got more. If you were a higher revenue firm, if you had more employment expenses, you, you got a higher payment. As per the stated policy goal, I mean, if you, if you thought about that as a program intended to support small business employees using small businesses as a channel, like, I don't know, like, like reasonable people could disagree about sort of whether or not that's the right policy structure, but it's at least like the, the logic of why you might do that. Um, but it's then the case that, uh, uh, black, uh, Hispanic, Latino-owned businesses are generally smaller. They're less likely to be employer businesses. They're less likely to have employees. And so when you look at it through a racial lens, you definitely see even conditional on getting payments, the payments being smaller because the businesses themselves are smaller, right, when you look at it at an aggregate level. So, yeah, uh, I mean, prior to a lot of dynamics going on in, in the PPP space and understand what's happening. Yeah, prior to the onset of the pandemic, I think only about 4% of Black-owned businesses had a second employee beyond the owner themselves. And if you were to take the entire space of Black-owned businesses, their total retail sales, and this would be approximately 3 million firms, their total re retail sales did not amount to half of the total retail sales for Walmart alone. So uh, you're quite right. I mean, when we say that Black-owned businesses are small in scale, we could actually say that they're relatively minuscule in scale. And if that is what determined the magnitude of, uh, of funds received through the payroll protection plan, then obviously, Black-owned businesses would be at a severe disadvantage. But I want to ask an, another question, I think, that is related to the exchange we were having a moment ago, Feneva, which is, is it entirely accurate to talk about the payroll protection plan as some sort of asset support mechanism for businesses if the objective was to ensure that the businesses would continue to pay their employees? You could then view it as an indirect income supplement measure for uh, for wage earners who were employed by the businesses that received these funds. I guess I was seeing it as both. I was seeing it as an asset. If we if we think of 
part of the wealth portfolio as business assets. So for it, for the black owned businesses, that's their, that's a source of their wealth, right? That, um, and indirectly, like you've pointed out, it is a source of income support for the employees and um, the people or for people who are on their payroll. So I was, I was looking at it more from the the entrepreneur, the self-employed standpoint um, as being a source of capital, uh, like, like a capital asset um, for, for them. Um, but if, if, if we were to take the universe of Black-owned businesses prior to the pandemic, it would only be about 4% of them in principle that would have been eligible for PPP support. Apply for PPP if you were a non-employer business. You didn't have to be an employer uh, I think that evolved through the rounds yeah. of PPP. Certainly, um, I think you got it right in terms of like the, the logic, particularly right at the beginning, right, was about supporting em- employees. Uh, I mean, also, I think 7% of businesses overall are employer businesses. So it, it's a meaningful gap in the, in the rate between Black-owned businesses and sort of white-owned businesses. But just to level set, right, like, like most businesses counted in, you know, government statistics are non-employer businesses. Um, but yeah, some some of that support did go to non-employer businesses. Certainly, in dollar terms, it mostly went to employer businesses because the dollar amount scaled up for larger businesses, right? So you kind of have to pick the statistic that answers the question you want to get at. But yeah, there, there's definitely some nuance there. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm also thinking about you know if we think about the wealth distribution and who's at the higher ends or the like the top quintiles a lot of their wealth is in this, you know, from business assets, you know, or, or gains from, from their businesses. So even if the, the black households that are at the top are not as wealthy as, as white, their white counterparts, this, if their source of their, uh, their wealth is compromised or was fragile in this moment, um, then we could potentially see once the new figures come out, you know, um, and if they weren't able to to benefit from the, these government policies, could could each of you reflect a bit on the fragility point that Finova just made? Uh, is there a difference in the degree of precarity that's faced by uh, black-owned businesses versus white-owned businesses uh, on average? If there is such a difference in the degree of precarity, what what accounts for it? I don't know because we haven't done the research on it yet, right? Uh, I was going to say, I don't, I'm not, I don't have any particular reason to think that the mechanisms have changed that much since post-COVID, although the context certainly have. But yeah, we definitely find through our lens and our data, so with all those caveats, right, that in aggregate, uh, Black-owned businesses are more likely to go out of business, you know, at any given age or some such. Most of that seems to be explained by revenue, right, like how big is the business through that lens, and our lens on liquidity, like how much of a cash balance do they typically keep around? When you compare Black-owned businesses to white-owned businesses and to sort of Hispanic Latino businesses, for that matter, when they have in the same industry, in the same place, same size, uh, same amount of liquidity, you, you really see those exit rates uh, even out quite a bit. Well, I'll jump in there and say that <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I, I, I agree with what Chris was saying about the fragility. I know um, one of the, the things that I've looked at is differences in venture capital. So the amount of investment that a lot of these firms have to start up with, which feeds into 
the, the amount of liquidity that Chris was referencing. Um, I also have an interest in um, Black women-owned businesses. And we see that um, not only are they single employer owns a lot of the businesses that they that they have, but a lot of these women are also holding other jobs while they're also trying to have their, their own business. So they're both in the labor market as an employee, but then also running their own business as well. And the inability to kind of focus solely either due to lack of financing um, or primarily due to lack of financing or, or in, uh, enough to kind of venture out on one's own in order to completely invest one's time and money completely into their business um, makes it also extremely fragile. So we also see, uh, and Danny, I know you know a lot about this, about um, the, the degree of inherited businesses. So, you know, is much more prevalent on um, among white owned businesses and the, and the different um, industries in which uh, we see uh, businesses kind of uh, being able to, uh, having access to and, and being able to, to flourish being a factor as well. How do you situate the initial enormous difference in wealth between blacks and whites as a factor uh, influencing the degree of fragility of white and black-owned businesses? I mean, it, it's, I think it's a primary factor. As you know, I think whether or not a business starts off in the you know either in the red versus in the black. Is a large determinant of, of, of future success, right? So if you are in you know, that, that's one, yes, that's one of the few contexts in which the term black is used positively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right, right? Yeah. No, 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 they, they don't mind being in the black for that one. <laughs> you know, no, they don't want to be black exactly, in any other context, exactly. but, but, but wouldn't mind being in the black on the, on the balance sheet. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, you know, there's also, I should say, <laughs> caveat, um, uh, you know, we have, we do see examples of wealthy or um, white business owners who have lots of debt and have lots of liabilities and, you know, um, and they use that and they turn that around in order to make more businesses and, and be quite lucrative and, and fruitful, but not seeing that same kind of mechanisms being offered or, you know, or working in the same way for, for black businesses and black owners. Some people refer to, I guess, the, the distinction that you're making here between having good debt and bad debt. You know, could, could you comment on that a bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, just that um, the way that you're able to use debt in order to make more wealth versus um, debt that is used against you and as a penal, you know, it's penalized as seen as um, like in the work that I do with student loans, is it seen as an investment or is it seen as a moral failing that you made bad decisions around, you know, taking on so much debt rather than seeing it as something that was a smart decision that led you to, um, you know, um, pursue uh, education and, and, and so on and so forth. So I, I believe that that's what you're alluding to with this idea of good and bad stuff, but also, you know, how it can be racialized in the sense that who, for whom, who is holding it when you call it good versus bad debt? Um, yeah, I mean, we have instances where people who hold extraordinary amounts of debt may actually have a negative net worth, but they are not going to be legitimately viewed as being wealth poor because the type of debt that they're holding creates opportunities for them to build assets. And then, then you've got peculiar cases like one of our former presidents, who I think frequently had a negative net worth, but I don't think anybody would describe him as being wealth poor. 
Yeah. So, the, but those that that's at the extreme end of the distribution. When we start talking about most people who have a significant amount of wealth, we're talking about people who have a large positive net worth. And that's racially dis differentiated because, uh, as you know from the work that we've done together, about a quarter of white households have a net worth that's in excess of $1 million. And that's true for only 4% of black households, at least in the most recent data that we've, we've had a chance to look at. There's a, if you open a finance textbook, right, it's going to suggest that, you know, getting a, a loan can be a really good way to finance an, an asset acquisition of some sort. And if you think it's a productive asset, it's going to be all well and good. And so I think there's a math answer to the question. And then there's like a, a moral frame answer to the question. And, you know, it's, I think it's observable that that's not equally applied to different kinds of people. Yeah, some people are, are permitted to accumulate much larger amounts of debt than others. And right. And then the narrative about it is, oh, well, this is this is a business loan and it's or it's a real estate financing or whatever the case may be. It's like a like a, a totally well understood way of acquiring an asset versus, you know, for whatever reason, that lens not being applied to, for instance, a, a student debt intended to to build a an educational asset and to support a career. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the corresponding line that I, I recall from, uh, from my youth was the, the observation that the huge borrower from a lender actually owns the lender's operation. But I'd uh, love to hear any other observations either one of you would like to make about this, this set of issues. And, and I'll keep it relatively brief. And I alluded to it before. I mean, I know because I was one of the people doing it, right? Like I, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, um, my presupposition, and I think lots of people's presupposition was that pretty much whatever way you cut any analysis, be it about financial outcomes, uh, non-financial outcomes, uh, health outcomes, the chips were going to fall the way that they typically do, right? So like we're all like <laughs> have been doing social science research for a while and you know, the accumulation of advantage usually plays out as a way of understanding what's going to happen in response to any shock. And this is obviously a huge shock. And so my prior was that the the outcomes were going to be like uniformly worse for poor people, for people of color um, and their intersections and their non-intersections, right? So for wealthier uh, people of color and, right? So, uh, and that was like l sort of surprising that it was less true, maybe a little bit less surprising with the benefit of hindsight. I think some of the initial views uh, didn't play out in such a persistent way. So you mentioned like the 40% of small businesses closing. And we kind of looked back on that and saw that it was like, well, actually it was like, and that, this is what Professor you know, Rob had, had said in his research, like the, the businesses weren't active. Like you couldn't be active because no one was going out uh, and, and buying things and that hurt. And that was like a real uh, pain point. But then we saw a lot of those businesses come back online. The structures have changed. We're still understanding what's happened there. But like some of those really short-term, very pointed, uh, very acute things that happened leveled out in the financial space in ways that weren't obvious. But all of that just feels very, the movement we, that we saw that was because of the pandemic was very important. I think we learned a lot of things about like what the shape of policy could do to mitigate things like that in a, in a lowercase p progressive way, right? Like by targeting 
lower income families, like what, what you could really do if you really do that. You can really sort of make some moves. But the big giant wealth gaps uh, that existed before the pandemic, like it's so hard for policy to move that around because the size of the problem is so big. For me, that was kind of a, a high level takeaway learning, which was like even policy that was designed to target lower income families that had its understandable tilt toward those families still wasn't materially closing the, the very, very large gaps that existed um, either in income um, or the even bigger uh, wealth gaps. And so it just kind of was sobering to think about what kinds of policy levers you'd really need to pull and how hard you need to pull them to, to really move the needle on, on some of the bigger problems. That's my thing that I've been saying to people and I'll say it again here because uh, I, I, think, I, I think it's worth sort of like calling some attention to. Well, I, I guess you know from my own work that uh, uh, I think that there are policies that could address these enormous disparities, but they're not incremental policies. The two that I have talked about the most is, first, with respect to the overall degree of wealth inequality in the society across all households, you might introduce a policy that some of us have referred to as a baby bonds plan, which is to provide a trust account to newborn infants that is measured on the basis of the wealth position of their families. So the wealthier your family, the smaller the size of the publicly funded trust account, the poorer your family in terms of net worth, the larger the size of the trust account that the child gets. And then to address the racial wealth gap, you know, I've long been an advocate of reparations uh, for black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. I guess I'll just add that, you know, thinking about the theme of the conference and the theme of the book in particular, and, and in particular, the, the, um, the chapter that I wrote, I co-wrote with Adam Hollowell, we really were trying to kind of show, you know, with examples from student student loans, um, housing and um, employment, the pre-existing conditions or the conditions prior to the pandemic really set, set it up in a way that put a lot of Black households in very um, vulnerable positions that this large health kind of health shock to the, um, to the households led to a situation in which if you were wealth fragile or, you know, were, had less wealth, you, you were going to um, be very vulnerable during this period. We saw a lot of policy action happening, rightfully so, that addressed um, the economic fragility of a lot of households, um, a lot of them being income-based, <laughs> income-based responses, but very short term. Right. So if we take for if we look back to like for the great the Great Recession as a you know a, as another example of what happened, we saw that it took several years for black and Latinx households to kind of rebound after that recession. So one can imagine that, you know, very short term responses um, may not be as uh preparative <laughs> uh for households that have are are more likely to be the most vulnerable during economic downturns and during health, major health crises within our society. So that's, I think it speaks right to this idea of exacerbating inequalities. Like if you are going to be the most likely to get hit um, and then 
um, maybe get some, receive some assistance because you just don't have or lack the, the resources um, and get some, get some governmental assistance, but then it stops. It may take, you may hopefully rebound, but it may just take longer and that's not going to do anything to kind of close gaps. Um, it either will stay the same or it will it'll grow. I think in the context of this conversation, it's important to talk about what people believe are the sources of racial wealth differences and what the data tells us are the actual sources of racial wealth difference. So I'm going to assert at the outset that the fundamental reason we have these enormous disparities in wealth, and as we said, the 2019 data tells us that the number is as large as $840,000 per black and white household. The, the fundamental reason we have these huge disparities is because of the inability of black families to transfer or transmit the same degree or level of resources to subsequent generations that white families have been able to transmit to theirs. The reason why you have that difference in ability to transfer resources is because of a host of policies that have been conducted by the federal government that promoted white wealth accumulation to the detriment of black wealth accumulation. And I would start with uh, the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, where the newly emancipated were promised 40-acre land grants as restitution for their years of bondage. That promise was not fulfilled. In fact, they received nothing in contrast with one and a half million white families that received 160-acre land grants in the Western territories under the Homestead Act of 1862. And uh, the University of Michigan researcher uh, Trina Williams-Shanks estimates that there are 45 million living white Americans who continue to be beneficiaries of the Homestead Act land patents. During the course of the period of legal segregation in the United States, there were upwards of 100 massacres that took place all across the country. And in the process of those massacres occurring, white terrorists took scores of black lives, but they also seized and appropriated substantial amounts of black-owned property, made it their own, thereby widening the racial wealth differential. Uh, in the 20th century, the federal government shifts away from asset building via land distribution to asset building via home ownership promotion. And that process was conducted discriminatorily. Whether you start with uh, restrictive covenants, move into the period in which the federal government is essentially sponsoring a national redlining plan, or into the period where in the immediate aftermath of World War II, the federal government is providing returning veterans with benefits under the GI Bill. And one of those categories of benefits were home ownership subsidies. And, uh, and those were uh, overwhelmingly delivered to white, white veterans and underwhelmingly delivered to returning black veterans from the war. And then to top it all, uh, you had the slum clearance programs and the federal highway system that's introduced in the aftermath of the 1950s or so, 
where you ultimately destroy black businesses, black business districts, as well as black neighborhoods uh, through these, uh, these, these so-called urban renewal projects. And so uh, the government is heavily responsible for the kinds of disparities we observe today. And that's what's made it very, very difficult for black families to transmit resources across generations in such a way that we could erase the racial wealth gap. Thank you so much, Feneba Addo, Chris Wheat, and of course, Dr. Darity for joining us on Voices in Equity from the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. We will put all the links in the show notes to Feneba's new book, A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. Also, we invite you to the panel discussion with Feneba and her co-author, Jason Houle, Tuesday, November 29th at 5.30 at the Washington Duke Inn. We'll have that link in the show notes as well. The Cook Center is named after Samuel Du Bois Cook, the first tenured Black professor at Duke University who exemplified the pursuit of social justice and equality. With research focuses including social mobility, education, health, wealth, and policy, the Cook Center aims to develop a deep understanding of the causes and consequences of inequality and develop remedies for these disparities and their adverse effects. To order the book Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, head on over to socialequity.duke.edu. That's socialequity.duke.edu. The podcast music for Voices in Equity is written and produced by Karan Kareem. This podcast is edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Maddie Braxick, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity.